Good morning, everyone. I say this every time. I have no idea why making announcements make me so nervous. It's not like I don't know how to speak in front of people. It's not like I'm you know, nervous or, or somehow out of my element being up here. But it just, it, it, maybe it is out of my element because I'm not focused on God's Word and delivering a message. But uh, it just really, I don't know, really makes me nervous. Um, so, we're back in my element, and we're looking at this series called Being Thankful. Not thankful, but thankful. And we have this idea and this, this understanding that thanks, an immediate appreciation for what God has done for us, should fill us. Literally, it should overflow in our lives to the point where it is clear to everyone around us and in our own hearts that we are amazingly blessed. And we have seen so far in the couple weeks that we've been looking at Thankful versus Thankful, the series, that faith in Jesus Christ is definitely essential when it comes to having contentment. Now contentment, as we've already seen, is not the same as having a joy or a peace. It is this understanding that we are better than okay with our status, with our stuff, with our things. We're better than okay. We haven't just accepted it, but we are excited no matter what God has given us because we know it's from a hand of blessing. And having faith in Christ makes that understanding of contentment a world of difference because without Christ, we worry, we get scared, we fear losing, and we fear we don't have enough. And a relationship with Christ helps us in that process of being thankful all the way up to 11 on the meter, having a total confidence in God because of our relationship with him. And this week, we're going to look at that confidence in God in a different way in Paul, with Paul in Philippians chapter 3. Now, there is a lot of stuff in these 14 verses that we're going to breeze through. And so this is in no wise... Uh, uh, a complete sermon or message or understanding of these verses in Philippians chapter 3, but it gives us a broad understanding of what Paul has gone through in his life in order to see the difference stuff versus Christ can have in his life. And he really shows us the difference of letting go of the things of this world for something greater and better in Christ and what that looks like and what he struggled with and what his goal was. So we're going to see that starting in Philippians chapter 3. Starting in the very first three verses, Paul starts out this section giving us a, a warning, basically. Uh, yes, it's an encouragement. Yes, it is to build us up. Yes, it is to kind of light a fire under us. But in an essence, it's really a concern of his and a warning that he gives all of God's people. And he starts out in the first three verses, and this is what he says. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Now, he said that many times in many epistles, that we should have a heart that rejoices, a heart that is worshiping God, a heart that rejoices and thanks God for who he is and what he's done. Not for what we get, but for the Lord. We rejoice in him. We don't rejoice in our status. We don't even rejoice in our stuff. We rejoice in the Lord. The direction and object of our worship is God and Him alone. Not ourselves, not even things that we've been blessed with, but God. We rejoice in the Lord. 
He goes on to say, It is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again. Oh, you know how it is as a parent with a small child, how many times you have to say, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. And it's not just relegated to small children, is it? Sometimes it's older children. And sometimes it's adult children. And sometimes it's adult children of children. And the list goes on. We have to be reminded consistently, especially about what God expects of us. Why do we need to be reminded? And why does Paul say, hey, it's no big trouble for me to do this? It's because we're forgetful. We forget. Sometimes we rebel. We are purposely not doing that. But oftentimes it's because we forget. And Paul says, hey, I know it's possible for you to forget, so it's no trouble for me to remind you of something that is earth-shattering in its importance for your spiritual life. Paul's happy to do it. So he says, I'm going to say it again, and it is a safeguard for you. It protects us, what Paul's going to say. And not just protects us from, you know, evil people or bad things happening to us, but it protects our heart and our soul, our very being, our nature in relationship to God. It protects us. So he says, I don't mind writing to you again the same things again and again. It is a safeguard for you. And then he says what he's warning us about in the safeguard in verse 2 and 3. Watch out for those dogs. Okay, I don't think he's literally meaning dogs here. He's obviously using this in a language to represent a person. Those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Do you know who Paul's talking about here? Because in history, he, he is very clear who he's talking about. He's talking about the Judaizers. These were the Christian Jews who said to new Christians coming into the faith for the very first time that were not Jewish, that you needed to be circumcised in order to truly be a Christian. Where did they get that from? Well, in Judaism, the male children were circumcised. That was normal. That was obvious. That was a covenant that God gave to Abraham. And God said, continue this as a covenant forever. And so the Jews who became Christians continued those religious traditions, specifically that one, and demanded that you were, if you were a Gentile and not been circumcised, you had to be circumcised before you were really, truly a Christian. And Paul fought that tooth and nail. It got to the point in Acts, in Acts 15 through 17, where eventually all of the church leaders had to get together for the Jerusalem council and make a decision. Do you have to be circumcised in order to be saved? And do you know what the answer of the church was? No, you don't. What you need is faith in Jesus Christ. That is how a person is saved. You do not add plus this, plus this, plus this. Plus you need to read your Bible, plus you need to go to church every week, plus you need to tithe, plus you need to serve, plus, 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 plus. There's no plus in order to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It is by faith and faith alone from the very beginning to the very end. It is by faith. And so Paul says you need to be careful. You need to be forewarned that there are dogs, that there are evildoers, who want to tell you otherwise, that want to mutilate the flesh, literally, to make you think you are now a spiritual, enlightened, heads above the rest type of Christian. We would never do that in the church, right? Look down upon someone based on a tradition and say, oh, 
you're wearing shorts to church? How dare you? Right? Oh, you have long hair? How dare you? A guy with a ponytail? How dare you? You can't truly be... A tattoo? Better hope that lightning doesn't strike. You see, we can be lulled into a sense where we think that being a Christian is faith plus adhere to my outside rules and regulations and traditions and you'll be safe. That's not the case. Paul says, I don't mind warning you again and again, they're evildoers, they're dogs, they're mutilators of the flesh. He goes, for it is we who are the circumcision who serve God by His Spirit. It's a spiritual circumcision who boast in Christ Jesus, not the act of circumcision, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Paul doesn't care one bit what the flesh looks like. That doesn't determine your relationship with God, your spiritual relationship with God, your maturity and fruit with a relationship with God. It's not based on outward appearance. And I am so thankful for that because that means I have a chance then. Because I have a beautiful image that's great for radio. That that was a total joke. Maybe it isn't a joke. Maybe you're like, yeah, Tim, I agree. Beautiful face for radio. Excellent. Wow, that's just... Announcements, and it's just gone downhill from then. So, Paul's basic point is, it doesn't matter. These outward conditions that the Judaizers were putting on new Christians or Christians today assume you must look like this, act like this, behave like this, and adhere to these traditions in order to be spiritual with God. Paul says, I don't mind warning you every week. You cannot fall into that trap that you think outward fleshly appearance equals spiritual maturity with God. Don't think that for one moment. Then Paul pulls out all stops and says, just in case you get the idea that Paul's maybe one not talking to you, that you're exempt from this, Paul wants to set the record straight that there really is no one more spiritually qualified outwardly than Paul is. Paul is a rock star when it comes to the outward appearance of looking religious. He is so good at that. He's better than me. He's better than you when it comes to his qualifications of what he can brag about. Have you ever known someone who... Um, maybe, maybe you're in a group of people and you're telling a story and uh, it's a fun story or it's a really cool story. You got to meet someone really important or famous and there's always that one person in that group that has to one-up you and go, oh, yeah, well, you met so-and-so. Well, I met so-and-so. Or you know so-and-so. Oh, I know so-and-so. Or, or, oh, you got second place? Well, I got first place. Oh, you got first place? I got first place twice. And, and they always have to one-up your experiences. Paul is going to one-up every spiritual qualification and benefit you think you have. He's going to one-up it. And so he spends three verses talking about how amazingly good he is compared to you. He says in verse 4, though I myself have reason for such confidence. He's talking about in the flesh. You know, we have these these people do these evildoers, these dogs 
who really try to highlight that you have to have circumcision in order to be spiritual, but really circumcision is a spiritual thing, not a physical act anymore. Paul says, but there's reasons for me to have incredible confidence. And then he lists his reasons. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now, Paul's not trying to be boastful here. He's not sinfully being prideful. He's just setting the record straight as far as someone who can boast in their accomplishments and boast about they are better than you. Paul says, I can do that, and here's my evidence. One, I was circumcised on the eighth day. A people of the Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law of Pharisee, and for zeal, persecuting the church as for righteousness based on the law, flawless. Now let's unpack what Paul just boasted about. He boasted about, first of all, that he was circumcised on the eighth day. According to the law of Moses, on the eighth day, you'd take the child to the temple, and the temple, uh, they would then circumcise that male child according to the law. Paul says, before I had even any ability to say, no, let's rethink that, Eighth day, he was circumcised. So before he was even walking and talking and making decisions, his life was already, according to a Jew, perfectly on track. Could not have done it any better. So from the very first requirement of an eight-day-old child, male child, he was spot on. Not only that, but he was of the people of Israel. He was a Jew. He traced back his history and ancestry and said, I am of Israel. I descend from one of the 12 tribes. And in fact, he knows, I know exactly the tribe that I belong to, the tribe of Benjamin. Genealogy and being able to trace yourself back in Jewish genealogy was of the utmost importance. Today, we can be interested in our genealogy. We can be interested in, hey, where did your family originally come from? Because very few of us are native-born here in the United States, our ancestry, that is. And so it's always interesting. You know, what nationality are you? Uh, a year ago, I got a, a DNA test back and came back. I am indeed human. Uh, I really thought about taking our dog's DNA and seeing if they still gave us, you know, what, where you're from. But I didn't want to be, you know from the Terrier family line. But uh, it was unique, it was interesting because um, the stories that I had been told through oral tradition, um, they were slightly off compared to the scientific DNA results of where I was from. Uh, doesn't discount my family's traditions and their appreciation for their history, uh, but it kind of narrowed it down a little bit to go, okay, uh, I really am Scandinavian more than I am German. Uh, from, those, from the DNA test. Uh, but for the Jew, it was vitally important that you knew what tribe you came from because that told you where you could live. Because the tribes divvied up Israel into uh, 13 to 14 different spots, depending on some of the tribes were half-tribes, uh, except for the Levites. They didn't get any land because they were uh, religious ministry people, so they lived in the churches and all that kind of stuff, or in the synagogues and the temple. But it was super important to know exactly who your parents were, who your mom was, who your dad was, and how to trace back your mother and father through the ancestry to one of the 12 tribes. And if you could do that, you were not just a good Jew, you actually then were Jewish, which meant you are part of God's covenant family. 
and it made you so much better than the Gentiles who were clueless about all of this genealogy stuff. And so he declares himself to be a Hebrew of Hebrews. If there was anyone that was a Hebrew, a Jew, it was definitely him. And no one could compromise with that. And then he says, in regards to the law, so my DNA and my genetics, I'm Jewish, but in regards to the law, a Pharisee. Now, a Pharisee often gets a bad rap, especially in the New Testament, when Jesus is concerned, because Pharisees are easy targets. Uh, they have a lot of holier-than-thou speech, but rarely, rarely live it. But a Pharisee was an incredibly intelligent person. In order to be a Pharisee, not only did you have a family, not only did you have to have male children, but you had to memorize the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. How many of us could recite the Ten Commandments? Roughly, roughly you could get all ten. Maybe one would be out of order. You know, that's six, seven, eight, nine. You know, they could get switched around a little bit. But how about the twelve tribes of Israel? How about just reciting the first three chapters of Genesis in Hebrew? Anybody able to do that? I can't do that. I kind of reached my limit at the Ten Commandments, and then I got a smattering of stories, I can tell you, out of those five books. But I certainly can't memorize them, or I certainly have not memorized them word for word. But to be a Pharisee, you had to memorize that. That had to be a requirement. Can you imagine the arrogance that these people must have had over the common person who had never touched a scroll in their life? How superior they must have thought themselves. How good they must have thought of themselves. Paul says there was no one better. And in fact, we're told that he was a disciple of Gamaliel, which was the premier, number one Pharisee in all of the land for probably a 100 to 200 year time span. Paul was a student of the best of the best. And not just that. Not was he just well-versed in Jewish history. Not that he was just circumcised. Not that he just had a great lineage. Not that he knew who his people were. Not that he just simply kept the law and was a Pharisee. But he had zeal that was unmatched by any of the other Pharisees. Because he says in verse 6, if you want to know about my passion for Judaism and the law, I was persecuting the church. I didn't just simply tell them they were wrong. I participated in putting them to death. And I went from town to town doing it. I spearheaded the persecution of Christians and made sure they died, were murdered, when they refused to recant and come back to Judaism. I'd say he was pretty sold on his Judaism. Very sold on it. And not to be mistaken, verse 6 closes by telling us more about Paul. He says, as for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. Now, Paul doesn't for one second believe that he was sinless. But if you were to point a law to him, and not just the Ten Commandments, but the 668 other commandments that Jewish tradition added to those ten, 
If you were to add all those up and say, Paul, did you do this? I believe he could stand in front of you and without lying say, yes, I did. No, I've not committed adultery. No, I've not murdered. Now, when it comes to sin, he says he was the biggest sinner of them all. <laughs> because Jesus doesn't just simply look at the act of murder. If you have anger in your heart towards someone, you've murdered. If you've coveted, you've stealed. If you've looked envious and lustful on a man or a woman, you've committed adultery. Paul's not talking about that. He's just talking outwardly. Did you look like this, this, and this? And did you, did you do this, this, and this? Paul can raise his hand and say, I'm blameless. Name one tradition I haven't obeyed. Even when I was eight days old, I was obedient to the law perfectly. I don't think there's anyone in this room that would be so bold and prideful to say, I can take on Paul's qualifications and beat him. Paul says there wasn't anyone. I was alone in being excellent. He continues in verse 7 to tell us what he thought of that, this side of a relationship with Jesus Christ. He says, but whatever these gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Paul, do you know how famous you could be? Do you have any idea? Paul, you could become maybe the high priest one year. You're on track for being the spiritual leader in all of Israel, and you give all of that up for Christ? For someone you never met except in this vision you had on the road to Emmaus or Damascus? You're going to give all that up for someone who suffered and died on a cross and then, according to some disciples, rose again? You're going to give all that up for this thing called faith? Paul doesn't regret one moment of giving up every privilege and honor he had. He was willing to give up every earthly benefit to him in order to see and have more of Christ in his life. It didn't matter his citizenship. It didn't matter his heritage. It didn't matter his lineage. It didn't matter all of his accomplishments. They were nothing compared to the relationship he has with Jesus Christ. How many of us could so easily give up all of those things in our life and be left with only a relationship with Jesus Christ to start with? That's eventually what happened to Paul. He gave up everything, had to flee for his very life out of Jerusalem and many other cities that were dominated by Jewish leaders in order to stay alive. He gave it all up. To be an itinerant missionary, just going from village to village, preaching Christ. Sometimes being threatened to be stoned, and so he'd have to leave that town, and he was at the next town, doing the same thing. You see, his relationship with Christ was not just, I raised my hand and made a decision. His relationship was so real, so honest, so genuine, that nothing in this world grabbed his attention as much as Jesus Christ. Nothing was shiny enough. Nothing could distract him. Nothing could take the place of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Nothing. Whatever gains to me they were, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And then he continues in verse 8 and 9 and tells us what is more valuable than a relationship with Christ. He says, what is more, verse 8, I consider everything a loss because of the unsurpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
That's what he said defines me. That is what my treasure is. That is what is precious to me. A relationship that Jesus Christ is my Lord. That immediately, immediately humbles me and convicts me to the core. Because I consider myself so much more than just a relationship with Jesus Christ. Think about this. You meet someone for the very first time. I don't, I don't care what the scenario is, but they've never met you before. They don't even know your name. And they ask an open-ended question that starts conversations. Tell me about yourself. What are some of the things you're going to list? You're going to list things like where you work, what your relationship status is. Uh, you might, especially in Pueblo, what are you going to say? What high school you went to. You're going to talk about, um, well, in my case, I would talk about food. And we would then have a discussion about, if we're in Pueblo, we'd have a discussion about what kind of food? Sloppers. And then we may, have, we may find common ground that, oh, you know what, Coors Tavern, hands down, best. Or Sunset, best. Or you may have a third one in there that I'm sure I tried, but I've totally forgotten because Coors is the best. <laughs> but we would start then talking about what sports team, what college, what job we have, and we'd start defining our likes and dislikes. And then we would get this uneasy conviction can I reveal to them? Can I tell them I'm a Christian? Where are we at in this relationship? I mean, are we, are we okay in this relationship? Are we, are we strong enough already with enough common things that I can pull out my ace? I'm also a Christian. I think if Paul was asked that question, he would have no doubt, first thing on his mind, you want to know something about me? How I would describe myself? What I want as my epitaph on my tomb? I follow Jesus Christ. Yes, all those other things are true of me, and we can have a heyday talking about all those things, but let me tell you about what my treasure is. My treasure is not my nationality. My treasure is not my skin color. My treasure is not my language. My treasure is not the citizenship of my country. My treasure is not my wealth. The treasure is not the school that I went to. The treasure is not my... <gasps> is he dare going to say it? family, my treasure, my all in all, the thing that lasts me through death and gives me hope of eternity is my relationship with Jesus Christ. All those other things are good and important in their place, but they have a secondary place every time to my King, to my God, to my Lord, my Savior. Everything else is there, but I don't depend on it. I don't boast about it. I'm not prideful about it. If I lose it, I lose it for Christ's sake, and I'm okay with losing it. It doesn't matter in the end. What matters in the end is my relationship with Christ Jesus, who is my Lord. So what is more valuable than Christ in your life? Paul says nothing. What is more? I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, 
for whose sake I have lost all things. And literally, Paul did lose all things. He lost his wife and family. Obviously, he doesn't have one at this time. He lost his wealth because he's making tents. And he lost the comforts of life because he's going from town to town hoping there's a house that he can stay in for the night. He's lost everything. I've lost all things, and I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. He considers them garbage. They're not useless to him. But in the scheme of things, in a relationship with Christ, he'd rather have more of Christ than more stuff, more awards than He'd rather have more Christ than more awards or more accolades or more comforts in this life. And we are trained as human beings to accumulate comforts in this life so that it's easy because we define easy sometimes as fun. And if we want more fun and ease, we need more stuff. Paul says, I'm done with that trap because my trap was bigger and better than yours ever will be when it comes to a relationship with the God of the covenant. And all of that is lost, that I might have Christ. More understanding of the depth of that relationship. He goes on to say, uh, especially in verse 9, and be found in him, that relationship. Not having a righteousness of my own, which Paul used to believe he had. I do this, 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 this. I'm righteous. I'm better than you. Because all of that. I'd be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. There's that word again, again and again and again. A faith-based relationship, a belief that Jesus Christ did indeed live the law perfectly, die on my behalf, took my place on the cross, paid my penalty, paid what I owed, the debt of sin and was found perfect in that payment, ransomed me perfectly, but it cost him his life. It cost him everything that Jesus had. A broken relationship with the Father because of taking our sin upon his shoulders, but being proved that that was good and acceptable and right in God's eyes because he rose again. Jesus is risen. That's cue for, He is risen indeed. Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. And so that is Paul's hope, that Jesus Christ gave up everything and gave us everything in return. His righteousness. This is mind-boggling. I don't know why God does this for us. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, one of the, and I know this is going to sound a little businessy. But one of the transactions that take place in that new relationship is God says in this judgment seat of his perfection and truth, you have sinned, talking to me, and you deserve hell as an everlasting punishment because of your sin. And he says, instead of you paying that penalty, I am giving that penalty to my son Jesus Christ. He will pay that penalty for you. Separation and punishment. And in place of that punishment, I'm not making you neutral. I am actually making you one of my children. I am adopting you into my family. And I am now giving you all the rights and privileges 
that Jesus Christ had as my son, I'm now giving it to you as my son and my daughter. You're adopted into my family. That is heavy. That is humbling. Paul says, that's all I want. I want to know more and more and more and more about how God has done this, why He has done this, and what kind of older brother I have in Jesus Christ who would willingly sacrifice Himself on my behalf. In verse 10 and 11, Paul gives us kind of his goal. And what a goal for us to have ourselves. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection. Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. Resurrection is always on on, on Paul's mind because that is the capstone of proof that his sacrifice was worthy. He says, yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participating in His suffering. Becoming like Him in His death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Always in Paul's mind. Always in Paul's mind. Always in Paul's mind. Is I live my life every single day knowing what happened to Jesus. I know exactly what happened to Jesus every step of the way. He stood and lived and taught and preached and declared the truth of God that you must repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that you must humble yourself, that you must stop relying on your own, I've done this, 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 and this, that all of your works are worthless. And yes, there will be people that hate that message that they're not important, that their acts are not valued in your eyes, and that you're not like them. There will be those that hate the message of the forgiveness of sins and mercy and compassion and love at all costs. And that hate can pour over to killing, like it did with Christ. And Paul numerous times says, I'm not in this world to alleviate difficulties and suffering. I embrace those because my Savior embraced those. I don't live to suffer, but when suffering happens, it doesn't derail me from seeing Christ and wanting to know Christ more and more, and specifically about His resurrection. Because Paul says, if He rose from the dead, then I'm looking forward to that too. I'm not looking forward to dying. I don't think anyone does. Eh, There may be a point in your life where you're suffering, and you're like, you know what, I just need to, Lord, take me home. That's a totally different idea. But Paul is not looking forward to that. He's looking forward to His resurrection. That yes, they'll put these bones in this flesh in the, in the ground and it'll decay, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. But my hope, my faith, the solid confidence that I have is that I will not remain that way. Not because I did this Christian life so good and God says, man, what a winner! No, God says, man, what a sinner that I redeemed that I put my love on, that I gave Christ righteousness, that I adopted into my family, I want Him here with me forever and ever and ever. Totally different. The world longs for that type of love, that type of acceptance. 
And we only get that type of love and acceptance in God through Christ Jesus. And so that's why Paul can say, I have every reason to boast that I'm better than you. But all of that is worthless compared to Christ. And he ends just in those last three verses, and I'm just going to read those as our take-home. Paul says, I'm speaking about all this stuff, but not that I've already obtained it all. Paul admits, hey, I'm I'm not perfect in this faith. I'm not perfect in this relationship. I'm not perfect in my understanding. I, I don't have all this down. Fellow Christian, fellow believer, great hope for us. If Paul doesn't have it down, I don't expect us to have it perfectly down. So Paul's real in this. It's not like I've already obtained all this or have already achieved my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul would willingly and did give his very life so that other believers and the world would see the power of Christ in a man who once held himself up as a martyr of Christians. God can do that same to us. He he has given us that same power and motivation to live like Paul. All he's done is shown us Christ. All he's done is made Christ valuable and important in our eyes and given us faith in him. And we can live just like Paul, that the stuff of this world does not define me. Having it doesn't define me. Not having it doesn't define me. Having Christ defines us. Let's live towards that end. That when we describe ourselves to the world around us, that Christ is the most important, precious thing that we share. We can share all those other things. But if we're missing out on sharing that Christ is our all in all, I don't want to say we failed. But I certainly hope that God brings a deep conviction in your heart. Because God stands and declares His love for you each and every single day. And never hesitates to say, He or she is mine. We should never hesitate to say, He is mine. Let's pray. Father, help us in our weakness when we shy away from declaring our faith because we're afraid. Lord, I'm the first one to admit that I've done it more than once. Forgive us, Father, for putting stuff ahead of You for making accomplishments in our life more important than You. For being boastful and prideful of our Christian actions and accomplishments. Help us to live and stand for Christ. In whose name all of God's people said, Amen.